Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Well, now to a health alert this morning. The average price of insulin has tripled between 2002 and 2013. That price hike is sending more Americans up to Canada, where they can pay up to 10 times less per vial. U.S. healthcare. We've been hearing from patients for a long time now who really cannot afford this insulin, and they need it to live. We've been fighting about it for decades. It just infuriates me to no end that this drug that we've had for almost 100 years is inaccessible for so many people. But in reality... One tablet of Daraprim used to cost $13.50. The drug maker recently increased the price to $750. Our debate has always been about how we pay for health care, never about what health care should actually be. Even the ongoing, almost decade-long fight over the Affordable Care Act, a Herculean effort to deliver what most of us would call inadequate solutions, has still left many Americans scrambling to pay for often less than great care. And at the epicenter of this entire mess is pharma. The one undeniable truth about the American healthcare debate is that pharma is one spot where we've never made any headway. The United States seems to be in a perpetual battle over drug prices and access to medicine, the same fight that's been going on for decades. But today, the battle against pharma is heating up like never before. People say to me, you gotta be crazy. How can you sing in times like these? Don't you read the news? Don't you know the score? How can you sing when so many others grieve? By way of a reply, I say a fool such as I, who sees his song as somewhere to begin. This is Brave New Words, and I'm Anat Shanker Osorio. As a communications consultant working with advocates for human rights, equality, and justice, I believe the job of a good message isn't to say what's popular. It's to make popular what we need said. I examine people's underlying assumptions and perceptions in order to understand why certain messages resonate where others falter. And now, with the help of some of the world's boldest, most strategic, and accomplished campaigners, I'm exploring the words that have won us progressive victories. These six episodes can provide a playbook for how to engage our base, persuade the middle, and reveal the opposition for the outliers they are. Let me tell you a story about a time a dedicated, audacious group of advocates actually beat pharma. The people involved were relentless in their courage to tell everyone that healthcare and medicine are human rights. If we don't have them, we die. We wanted several things from Big Pharma. We wanted more drugs, drugs that could work. Uh, we wanted more clinical trials to investigate uh, what could work. And we wanted lower prices. This is Ann Northrup. 
She's a journalist and activist who currently hosts the TV news program Gay USA. But back in March 1987, she and a group of largely gay, lesbian, bi, and trans activists came together to force pharma and the government to better respond to the AIDS crisis that was decimating their communities. ACT UP quickly became known for their shows of civil disobedience. But they backed up their headline-grabbing demonstrations with an expert-level understanding of the medical science behind HIV and AIDS, as well as the inner workings of media and the necessity of symbolism and spectacle. And while much of their work was aimed at government agencies, they landed equally important victories bringing pharma to heal. So one of the early demonstrations was at the New York Stock Exchange, where we infiltrated the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, got ourselves in there, and hung a big banner from the, uh, the wall or the ceiling saying, Sell Welcome. And that was a reference to the Burroughs Welcome Company that was manufacturing AZT, and was charging uh, astronomical prices for it. At the time, AZT was the only drug available to help people battling HIV. So what we wanted was for the stock traders to sell that stock so that the price of the stock would go down and thereby influence the company to drop the price of AZT. And that was a very targeted action because uh, how many people would go after the stock price of a company to try to influence its behavior? But it was very effective. And a couple of days later, they did indeed drop the price. There was a very clear target and theory of change in the case of Burroughs Welcome. But when ACT UP was coming up with strategies to target pharma more generally, what was the approach? First, to make ourselves experts. We spent a lot of time investigating whatever drug or issue we thought was in need of attention. And we could spend weeks or months in researching. And once we had done the research and talked about it in our weekly meeting, then we would establish a goal. What is it exactly that we want this company or this government agency to do? And once we had established that, then we would try to meet with the company and ask for what it was we wanted. We tried to have a logical negotiation about whatever it was. And it was only after that failed that we would start a campaign of demonstrations or activism to try to publicly shame the company or the agency into doing what it is we thought they should do. Uh, I think the FDA is actually a great example of that. And we were also very careful to characterize these demonstrations in a way that was understandable to the general public when we had reached that stage of public humiliation. And so this one was called Seize Control of the FDA. And we brought activists from around the country to surround the building and shut it down for a day. And one thing we did that I thought was very effective was we invited in the national press, and by that time we had enough of a name, and there we were attacking the FDA. That was uh, unique. So the whole national press showed up because this was Washington, D.C., and three of us talked to the press and gave the uh, sort of opening remarks in very uh, 
brief and targeted ways. Uh, I can remember talking about, uh, you think the government is trying to save your lives, but they aren't. And that was the basic message I wanted to get out. And when we finished talking, we said to the press, over there, we have lined up 50 people. Each of them is from a different state. And so you can go talk to someone from the state that you represent with that hometown newspaper here in Washington. And there was this brief moment where they paused and they looked at us like we had lost our minds and they looked at the lineup of 50 people and then they just went running to that lineup of 50 people so they could get local sound bites for their newspapers and TV. So seize the FDA, obviously the famous, famous slogan, silence equals death. What went into or what was the thinking when you would move from this more stealth, not stealth, but like insider negotiation mode to this public, let's actually um, shine a light on this. How did you all make choices about the language that you would use and how you would frame the issues? We were looking to talk to the American people and to get them to understand, because our ultimate goal when we had gotten to that stage was to put pressure on the institution. The FDA changed its drug approval process uh, very shortly after that demonstration, and it was because public pressure is brought to bear. So we had to talk not uh, to the media, but through the media to our real audience, which was the American people. We had to change public opinion or educate the public on uh, how to understand these things. Mm -hmm. And our goal, therefore, was to speak in very direct, very simple terms, not talk over anyone's head, not use language that was too obscure, too scientific. Uh, we had full confidence in their ability to understand the concepts and to act on that when we explained it to them. But we also understood that they had never had the chance to understand these things. So we took responsibility for explaining it in simple ways. What was it about ACT UP that made you so successful? Certainly the life and death urgency uh, combined with the privilege of people who were willing and able to fight back, people who were able to get arrested. I've probably been arrested 20 times in ACT UP demonstrations. There are not that many people who are willing to go out and get arrested in the street or who can get arrested in the street. Certainly, uh, we know how the police treat all sorts of communities. And can we tell those people, go out and uh, get yourself arrested? No, because of how they're going to be treated. We were treated better. Uh, I, I think the life and death urgency, and that is not to say that people are not facing uh, life and death urgency in the context of how pharma treats them, but they're just, uh, I, I don't know, there isn't the same uh, willingness to put their lives on the line in this way. And I think the... Uh, to sound a little too stereotypical, but I think it's true that there's a power structure that wants to maintain power, and they're just not giving it up anytime soon. As a result of countless protests and demonstrations, ACT UP forced the price of AZT down by 20 percent. 
sped the release of multiple AIDS-related treatments and changed the entire process behind clinical trials in the United States. So how did we end up like this? If ACT UP gave us an anti-pharma push government to do more blueprint over 30 years ago, it's almost entirely a story of corporate greed and the pay-to-play politics we've come to expect across industries. But we need to focus on our role in this mess. As progressives, we've failed to engage a motivated base to persuade Americans to make and keep this issue top of mind while voting. We can't control what pharma says or does or how much money they have to do it. But we can control what we say and how we say it. For a long time, the rhetorical strategy on our side has been all about markets. Let markets be markets and give consumers better choices. We tested this very message with Lake Research Partners in a 2016 online survey when a representative sample of 1,500 adults gave us their moment-to-moment impressions. Here's how the status quo market-based message we tested went. We need to promote competition and use our bargaining power to lower drug costs. Today, drug corporations don't disclose what they spend on research versus marketing. Instead of exploring new cures for serious diseases, they produce slight variations of popular pills with little to no detectable benefits and pay doctors to recommend them. Rather than embracing competition that drives down prices, drug companies, quote, pay for delay generic versions of drugs from coming to market. Drug corporations are monopolies using patents and price fixing to rig the market for their profits. We must outlaw these practices and let the market for drugs operate like a true, free, and fair market. So how'd this message do? Okay, in terms of convincing the middle. But with this issue, our core job isn't so much persuasion. People already hate pharma, and they know they're the bad guys. Our job is activation, getting people to put and keep this issue top of mind when there is so much happening in politics and outside of it. And no one is getting out of bed to go marching for better regulated markets. A market-based appeal is meant to make us sound like the reasonable adults in the room. But it doesn't drive our base, and it doesn't put any moral stake in the ground. It tacitly accepts our opponents' terms, that medicines are rightly thought of as things we buy and sell in a regular market, not matters of life and health that should be freely available to all. Also, pharma has a counter-narrative if we're in the market frame. They sell themselves as necessary to innovation, progress, and saving lives. They're the people who are bringing the very best and latest goods to that market. And they're happy to spend some of their billions to put out ads to spin this kind of story. When I was diagnosed with MS, the first thing I thought about was my family. I came home and cried. But as I've seen my disease progress, the medicine has progressed right alongside it. Trying to make medications more affordable is important. But if Washington isn't careful, we might leave innovation behind. Let's fix the system the right way. Innovation is hope. And the last thing you want to lose in life is hope. In fact, pharma has been so successful at reinforcing their position within what we're conditioned to think of as a healthcare marketplace that Democrats cut a deal with them to ensure their support to help pass the ACA. There was prevailing wisdom at the time that you would have to divide the industry in order to pass a major reform. That's Margarita George, executive director of Healthcare for America Now, also referred to as HCAN. 
it was clear that the Obama administration decided pretty early on that um, they were going to let pharma off the hook, essentially, in order to focus on the insurance companies and, um, you know, passage of the bill in a way that would regulate insurance companies and um, lower costs for people and expand coverage. So there was a calculation that if we hadn't done that, we wouldn't have been able to have enough power to pass any kind of law. Well, what story is pharma selling? In this case, what are they saying to convince people that they should just be left alone? Well, I mean, I think uh, their story is a simpler story because there's so much fear and worry about healthcare, And so I think a lot of the messages that we hear from the industry are, you know, healthcare is really expensive. We have to charge you this much. So I think, in fact, they don't have very good arguments, right? It feels like such a big problem. There's no obvious solution. And then that creates the opportunity for the industry to hone in on what I do think is their most effective message, which is change is bad and you should be afraid of it because it could get even worse. So it really always has felt to me on healthcare like a significant challenge has been that people sort of prefer the devil they know. So fast forwarding a little bit um, and zeroing in on pharma. Pharma is a big topic now. <laughs> pharma pharma does seem to be in the crosshairs. Um, why? What what started that off? A lot of it actually has to do. I mean, it has to do with a couple of things. One is they're just so 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 greedy, um, and they <laughs> so their prices are just like astronomically high. And we've and you know the press is, has been picking up on that. And so I think you know uh, people are just actually experiencing higher costs, and it's touching many more people because. Uh, many more people need prescription drugs than than even needed them 10 years ago. So I think there is the concrete thing that just a lot of people are impacted and, um, you know, they have a direct experience of it. I think uh, there's been a lot of attention on the opioid crisis mm-hmm. and the opioid crisis has really put a spotlight on prescription drugs, on the industry. I mean, people are pissed off at them. They really see the prescription drug industry as complicit slash responsible for creating this crisis. And we noticed um, over the last couple of years since we reconvened HCAN, it's such a hot topic of discussion that even moderate legislators who, you know, frankly, uh, back in 2011, 2012, 2013, when we sort of went to those legislators and said we ought to do something about pharma, but they weren't interested, all of a sudden, fast forward to the Trump era, they're holding hearings in their states going after the prescription drug companies for prescribing pain pills. So I think that's brought a lot of attention to it. And it and it's brought attention to it across the across the political spectrum. Right. So we see both conservatives and more liberal legislators talking about it. And that's true in the public, too, in the public You see rural states, you see urban areas, you see black people, white people, old people, people with kids, just like the number of times that the opioid issue comes up and people just curse the prescription drug companies, I think has contributed significantly to moving this up on the list. So, you know, you and I have talked before about the tendency among progressives, and in this case, it's really, really, really tempting you know, I made a joke that 
pharma villains. It's like you guys hatch them out of a test tube. They're not even real, right? You have a dude like Martin Schiff Kelly and like, talk to me a little bit about the temptation to just talk about how nasty and terrible and horrible they are. Whether you see that happening, what the upshot of that is, is that a good idea? Yeah, I I mean, I see it happening a lot and not just, you know, like, look, I just think we're in a moment right now it's a resist moment, right? Like we've we are caged in by right wingers, you know, on every side and I think people's instinct is to fight and that is the right instinct. But I do agree. I just think that the the fight alone, you know, on the campaign that we're putting together, we talk a lot about the need to take the fight to the opposition and I think that's a really important tactic. But it's only a tactic, right? And it has to fit into a bigger strategy. I don't think that beating up on um, the corporations alone is going to get us to the other piece of the story, which is the more important piece of the story, which is what the hell we can do about it. Right. So you have opioids and the sort of mass peddling of what is now an addiction. You have pharma raising prices for really basic things like EpiPens or insulin. So how do you tell this story? How do you mobilize people to change the rules regarding pharma? My view is that, you know, people are pissed off at pharma and they hate the prescription drug companies. That's not going to be enough to get us the change that we want. And so partially what we need to do is, you know, have an aspirational story that um, helps inspire people to believe that change is possible and that they actually have a role in it, right? That we have a right to affordable medicines in this country, even more so on prescription drugs than some of the other healthcare issues, because it's largely taxpayer money that's funding the research and development and innovation. And so, you know, telling that story that connects those dots gives people a little bit of new information, because I think actually people don't know that we're paying for research and development Mm -hmm. um, is going to be critical to the organizing and constructing that kind of conversation that we can repeat over and over and over and over again in the field, in real person interactions, and then, you know, online in our messaging and in the media are going to be really, you know, that to me is sort of what we need to do to, you know, to a huge scale in order to get us to where we need to go. What Margarita is highlighting is critical. It showed up loud and clear in that same online survey I mentioned earlier. You already heard how the let markets be markets messaging on pharma proved inadequate. Here's another way to frame this debate, a winning message we tested. Whether it's routine, like strep throat, or scary, like cancer, illness reminds us that at our core, we're all human. Everyone wants proven treatments without fearing we'll go bankrupt to get them. Corporations extract large profits selling medicines developed from publicly funded research so that we pay for drugs twice, first in taxes and then at the pharmacy. Life and health should not be for sale. Studies show that around half of prescription drugs come from research we fund with our public dollars. We must make these essential medicines affordable for all Americans. Everybody deserves the best chance possible to live healthy lives. A life-saving medicine doesn't work if people can't afford it. Talking about medicines not like any old widget from a market, but highlighting that they're public goods invented at public institutions funded by our tax dollars, 
That's messaging we found that's both persuasive to the bulk of U.S. adults and moves our base from agreement to action. And to win on this issue, we need to seize the moral high ground and make clear that we have the solution, that innovation, drug discovery, and better, quicker cures happen when drugs are public goods. However, inside the government, the fight against pharma is running into many of the same issues that have frustrated outside advocates. One of the main roadblocks against dealing with pharma? Well, the short answer is they have all the money. That's Dan Riffle, senior counsel and policy advisor to Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Pharma has a lot of money, and they use it to hire folks away from the Hill. And the end result is there's this, like, tentacle situation where, you know, you have the Capitol building here, and you have pharma outside there. But through all of these, you know, through this revolving door, pharma has tentacles all into and all through the Capitol building, and all of the House and Senate offices. So, you know, a good example, I remember a couple of years ago, there was uh, an issue where uh, a pharmaceutical company was given exclusive marketing rights uh, to a drug related to Zika virus. This is like at the height of the, the Zika mosquito scare that was going on. And uh, so one pharmaceutical company had exclusivity, and another office started circulating a letter around uh, this issue and saying that, you know, there should be more competition. And the letter hadn't even gone public, hadn't been sent yet, wasn't finalized, still working on the text, still trying to get more co-sponsors on it. And just by, you know, telling them that, yeah, that sounds good, I'll support it. Well, somehow that letter, you know, found its way into another staffer's hands and found its way into Pharma's hands. And I got a call from Pharma like, hey, we heard you're going to sign on to this letter and I'd like to sit down and tell you why you shouldn't do that. And that was the first example for me where I was like, wow, these guys... These guys are everywhere. You know, they have everything. So um, I think, you know, that's the, the thinking, at least here inside and, you know, folks on the outside. I, can, I think when you look at the uh, PAC, you know, financing list, when you look at the campaign donation list and you see the big numbers that jump out at you, always pharmaceutical companies at the top of the list, for pe- particularly for the members who are on the health committees and who regulate this thing, um, you know, it's easy to see why pharma has the power that they do. And in terms of language and messaging, it's obviously a complicated issue. There's a lot going on. What do you find to be the most compelling kinds of messages to get people activated or persuaded on this issue? Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, I have worked in Medicare for All, and so I mostly work in the health insurance part of it, which obviously overlaps with um, pharmaceuticals. But, you know, I think I'd be interested in polls just on, on the percentage of people who understand words like copay and deductible and coinsurance, um, you know, because famously the president, you know, not so long ago found out that healthcare is complicated. But, um, <laughs> you know, to his credit, it is complicated. And I think, you know, there's plenty of people here who work on healthcare in Capitol Hill who don't know all of the acronyms, who aren't familiar with, you know, all of the sort of mechanisms and and the Rube Goldberg system by which healthcare is financed and delivered in this country. And so I think it's incredibly important to not talk about utilization rates, but talk about, you know, going to the doctor, how many people go to the doctor, you know, to not talk about um, deductibles and copays and out-of-pocket costs, but to talk about how much money you spend on healthcare, you know, and to kind of put it in layman's terms and real, real words that people can understand. Because if we start talking you know, and wonk speak to each other, and we only talk in that language, then we're only talking to each other, and it's not getting outside of Washington. What Dan's mentioning is something we see in the testing. 
Even single word differences flip people's view on pharma in meaningful ways. So, for example, when we asked persuadable respondents for their views on, quote, prescription drug companies, they were net positive. Slightly more people rated them as favorable than unfavorable. But when we asked the same kinds of people about prescription drug corporations, we saw those ratings flip and a majority now gave pharma negative marks. The same goes for asking people about prescription drug costs versus prices and whether we should regulate them. Costs suggest to people some kind of inherent value. That's just how much the thing is worth. Price, in contrast, implies a choice somebody made to charge a certain amount. So what can we learn from all of this together? Lesson one is seize the moral high ground. Frame your argument in terms of life and death. Whether that's silence equals death, as ACT UP so famously put it, or life and health shouldn't be for sale, as came through in our testing. Lesson two is that clear, well-defined language is required, especially in an issue riddled with jargon and endless acronyms. And lesson three is we must curb the progressive tendency to focus just on problems. We must present people with the chance for big, bold solutions that will improve our lives for generations to come. Here's one example from Dan's boss, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, making just this case to the face of a pharma CEO. We, the public, we, the people, developed this drug. We paid for this drug. We led and developed all of the grounding patents to create PrEP. And then that patent has been privatized, despite the fact that the patent is owned by the public. We refuse to enforce it. There's no reason this should be $2,000 a month. People are dying because of it. And there's no enforceable reason for it. We own the intellectual, the core intellectual property for it. And as a result, people are are dying for no reason. Shifting from drugs as market goods that we make a little bit cheaper to describing what they really are, essentials that are almost always invented with our public dollars, paves the way for re-envisioning what's possible in this issue. And with it, incentivizing people's desire to get in the ring with us for a massive fight that requires all of our might. I'm Anat Chinkro Osorio. Brave New Words is produced by Western Sound for ASO Communications. Our theme song is Somewhere to Begin by T.R. Ritchie. Brave New Words is made possible thanks to support from the Narrative Initiative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to making justice and equity common sense. Learn more at narrativeinitiative.org. To learn more about our interviewees and the current fight to make life-saving drugs affordable to all of us, visit bravenewwordspod.com. And please, subscribe to this podcast, rate it wherever you listen, and spread the word. A song is somewhere to begin To search for something worth believing in If changes are to come There are things that must be done And a song is somewhere to begin